Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we're getting into private artificial intelligence. You're like, what the heck is that? Well, we're going to get into the weeds here with our sponsor, VMware. We're visited by Chris Wolf, Vice President from VMware AI Labs. What stuck out to you in this conversation, Ned? Well, you know, you say AI, and then you say VMware, and some people might have cocked an eyebrow going, really? VMware? But the answer is yes. They have been working intimately with AI and with customers for several years now. And so Chris is here to share what they've learned and where they're going forward. Enjoy this conversation with Chris Wolf. Chris Wolf from VMware, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And man, we want to jump right into this conversation about private AI, because it's not enough we have AI, lots and lots of conversations about AI going on in the industry right now. But now private AI is uh, maybe a, a bit of a twist. So set us up with what private AI is, Chris. I think first, you want to think about this is not just something new that VMware invented, because it's not. I mean, the concept around private AI has been in our industry for at least six, seven years. And I'd say what VMware has done is further contextualize what it means. I mean, you can go back to, I want to say 2016 or 2017, and there was even presentations from Microsoft Research on this. So where we see it is effectively bringing the AI model and compute to wherever an organization desires to keep and store their data. So it's really around data privacy and control at the end of the day. And when we got down this path, what we saw was the use cases that we had internally, we started seeing, well, our customers have the same use cases where they don't want to have to convert their data to some type of proprietary format to take advantage of AI. They want to bring the AI to their data and, and while maintaining full control of it. And for a company like VMware, right, where our, our source code is our business, we wanted to bring AI to coding, but we weren't willing to have our uh, source code leave our buildings or our firewalls, per se. Okay, so private AI is not necessarily a location, per se. It's more of a, a way that you're managing where the model runs and also where the data lives that you're feeding into that model. Exactly. It's about ensuring that the business can uh, meet their own privacy and control mandates while maintaining some degree of flexibility. Like for us, we've introduced some solutions that are bringing private AI on-premises, but if the customer desires to run that in a hyperscaler using a virtual private cloud, that's a viable architecture as well. You mentioned a few different use cases that VMware had identified internally, but also that your clients were facing as well. What sort of use cases did you have in mind? There's been a few. So AI-assisted code development was one. And, and we had looked at GitHub Copilot initially, which I think a lot of folks do. And for us, where we felt comfortable with Copilot was really for upstream open source contributions, because we, we have very good compliance scans already that we run internally, and we thought that that was safe. We did not want to start using Copilot with any of our proprietary IP. So that was one approach. And then we, we started, um, you know, after Copilot, we looked to bring Hugging Faces. Initially, it was their open source star coder model on-premises, and uh, started seeing good success with that for code development. And now other use cases that we've been working on would include some document search and summation. So we have uh, we have a model trained on all of VMware's documentation and KB articles, which can really improve time to resolution. We're looking at legal use cases as well. We use AI for creation of marketing content. There's quite a few. And, and I think what's been helpful for us is from a prioritization perspective, we've tried to prioritize our internal use cases that our customers also have. So, you know, that, that gives us a chance to just share what we're learning with the, with the industry because we're all kind of in learn mode right now. Yeah, how about it? AI is so new and it's changing so rapidly. It's hard to keep track. Uh, for those who are not deeply steeped in it, you said hugging face and people might be like, what is that a thing? Is that a company? Is that a model? Uh, can you explain just uh, for folks who are listening what hugging face is and how it interacts with what VMware is doing? 
Yeah, I think the, the easiest way to think about Hugging Face would be as the GitHub for AI. Uh, you know, you just like, you know, GitHub for a, a community that Bill grew up around open source, right? And being able to share code for any project you're working on and draw collaboration around it. You're seeing a similar approach with Hugging Face today. There's a leaderboard. You can see what are some of the top AI projects uh, going on. It's a great opportunity to just collaborate on how to tune models, how to gain access to open source models, et cetera. So that's essentially the path for us. And open source is a, a huge part of our strategy because uh, we see AI as a multi-cloud use case and being able to take advantage of open source models that I can have some flexibility to run just about anywhere is something that we, we found to be very appealing. You mentioned using AI to help with writing code, and there's been a bunch of articles about code being leaked in various ways. Does private AI help deal with that problem or are those actually two different problems? I think it, it absolutely does. And it was a requirement for us. So we brought down the star coder model and the base model, it definitely needed some work. It, it, it needed some fine tuning to be able to really hit our standard in terms of like our coding styles, our commenting styles. One thing we found uh, with the base model was we we're trying to get it to write in C and it accidentally dropped some Python in. Uh, however, the silver lining was we were able to take some of the commits from our some of our top engineers. That's the data set we used to tune the model. And it took us less than half a day on a couple of A100s uh, to do it. And so that was like uh, one of the first ahas for us was there's always this belief, I think, out there that AI is just, it's out of reach. I need like hundreds of GPUs if I'm going to do anything, if not thousands, right? And we're like, huh, how about that? We tuned this thing on, it was like less than a gig of data and um, did it in a, a small period of time. And then we turned it loose for inferencing. Uh, and even our inference performance was about up to 400 software engineers on a single A100. We were still getting good inference times uh, with that. So we're seeing really low cost, good densities, much quicker ability to tune a model, meaning we can do it more frequently, which is also a plus for us. And the uh, acceptance rate from the software engineers that were in the pilot was greater than 90% that saw value in the tool, wanted to keep using the tool. At the end of the day, it's, it's automating a lot of things that developers were doing manually, right? Like, oh, I have this problem, let me search Stack Overflow. Let me, uh, then that gives me my starting point right now. The AI is just automating all of that. So I can just drop something in. I can modify the code to get it to do what I need it to do. And then, you know, off you go. So they are seeing that they're saving time. We haven't been able to fully measure like what is the productivity gain yet? It's something we want to do so we can put a, a better number behind it. But we are seeing, you know, really strong positive results so far. Another use case you described was uh, documentation, knowledge-based articles getting pulled into LLM. This is one that it feels like it's low-hanging fruit and also would be incredibly beneficial for practitioners who are trying to solve problems. A lot of times when you're digging into, you're troubleshooting an issue or you're trying to figure out how to do something, you need the process to accomplish some task, you don't even know the right questions to ask. And you're starting to search through articles. You just can't find the, the one that gives you the thing until it's like, oh, if I'd known to ask for this keyword or something, then it would have gone so much more quickly. But if you could ask uh, AI in your own words, the thing you're trying to do, I have this sense that, man, we could get to a resolution much more quickly. Can you talk about early results with uh, working on documentation, knowledge-based articles, how the impact that that's having? Yeah, the, I'd say there, there's two things. So first, definitely like trying to get to important information. You're able to do that very quickly, 
uh, whether it's like I need to know what are the uh, certain vSAN configurations or maximums or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, other parts of like, here's an issue I'm having, you know, what are potential causes, right? These are really great in terms of generating a list. Uh, the, the caveat I would say is, and I'm sure you have all seen this too, like go on ChatGPT. And the one thing about generative AI is it is confidently wrong. Right. When it is like yes. just like a complete garbage <laughs> answer and it just it, it, it communicates it with such authority. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Like, like even like our Llama 2 uh, 70 billion model, when we deployed it on prem, you would ask it the CEO of VMware and it would like make up a name. Not even like that person's never even worked yeah. at this company before. And it's like, oh, yeah, here it is. Like as like as like this is the answer. So I think that's where there's work to be done, but definitely seeing good results there. And, and this is something that we see long term for VMware in terms of really changing the game for product support and, and really helping our customers to, to get to potential issues or causes of a failure much quicker. Yeah, I think one of the biggest improvements that I've seen for those types of queries is the addition of citations. So not only does it give you an answer, but, oh, here's where I got the answer. So you can fact check it. So if I'm searching, like you said, for, I want to know the specs on a vSAN for a specific version of VMware, it might give me the wrong specs because it's using the wrong version, but at least it gives me the link to the KB article. And I could probably, you know, hit a drop down menu or something and get it to the right version once I can follow that link. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're uh, we're combining the language model with RAG or retrieval augmented generation so that you're combining search with, you know, the breadth of knowledge that you already have in the model. Those things will help. And and your other point is, is spot on, too. We, we've had our researchers for, I don't know, probably about five years now working on AI explainability. So that's something that we see as uh, even a, an area where VMware as a neutral party can add a lot of value in terms of being able to help an organization to understand how the model arrived at the results that it did. AI explainability as in AI came up with this answer in some particular way and you can explain how it got from A to B? Yeah, exactly. The science behind it is is difficult because you know every model is different, approaches are different. But again, to us, it's a, it's a problem that needs to be solved because people want to be able to trust AI. And if you're having to double check everything the AI is doing, then, you know, it's not really saving you time as you would like it to. It's funny that you bring that up. I didn't know that AI explainability was a term, but I've certainly read articles where scientists kind of don't understand how this model gets to this answer, which is a little disconcerting. So to be able to explain it and and articulate exactly what's going on seems like we do need to get there. How do we tweak the models to, to get the answers that we're expecting? The basic things now that you've seen in terms of like promise to like the U.S. federal government is we'll watermark areas of content generated by AI. But again, okay, it's AI generated, but it's still not helping you to uh, get to the root of like, what is the context behind that, right? So to us, it's a it's a longer term bet that we're placing. Our research team has published some academic papers on it going back the last couple of years. So it, again, we're, we're going to continue to focus there. And as we start to see more stability in terms of, you know, where, where are folks gravitating to on the AI front, uh, that's going to that's gonna help, I think, with explainability as well. You know, definitely there's this large growing ecosystem around Llama 2 as a good uh, starting point, I would say. All right. But you mentioned some hardware earlier, the A100, the NVIDIA card. What does the entire infrastructure stack look like if I'm interested in running private AI? You know, you guys would know as as packet pushers that, uh, you know, you, you get into the proverbial, it depends. But mm-hmm. here's where, you know, here's where it's at. I mean, like, so basically for us, 
uh, we, we published a reference architecture uh, as well as a, a GitHub repo with code samples to help customers automate and stand up an environment for, for AI. And that takes a lot of the guesswork out. Uh, the other thing that we're in the process of publishing will be some starter packs. So for use cases like code development, we'll be able to tell you, here's how many GPUs you need, here's how to size memory, here's how to size storage uh, on, a, on a per use case basis, which is the next level. And now for basic AI, like inferencing work or some basic model tuning for smaller models, you can get by with 25 gig networking. That's that's okay. You start getting into 100 gig and up once you get into the larger model sizes. So, you know, 40 billion plus parameters, I'm going to need a much beefier network. But again, if we go back to like a little bit of myth busting, there's folks out there that'll say, you can't do anything in AI without InfiniBand. Like, don't bother. And if you're open AI, sure, right? If, if, you're, if you're running these mega LLMs, you, you need that. But there's a lot of traction right now in smaller models that are more specialized. They're being tuned to particular business processes. So now I need a lot less hardware to maintain them and to even tune and optimize them. And, and we think that's a big part of the future because that's really making AI more accessible. And we're seeing a lot of customers that they want that kind of choice. They want they want to be able to go best of breed uh, for a particular business issue. And, and that's where we think there's going to be a lot of traction. And then that just makes all of this far more accessible. Like I, I talked to a, a CIO of a pretty large bank last week when I was in Singapore, and um, they're running some LLM use cases on-prem and they're using CPUs today and they're they're doing just fine with it. And, you know, these are the kind of things that people are like, wait, I, you can't do that. It has to be, you know, there's people believe you have to have all of this. So it really depends on the model size and the use case, because it can be a lot easier than you would think it would be. Well, on the networking side, you were talking about, oh, you got to have InfiniBand if you're running something quite huge. Maybe not. There's the Ultra Ethernet Consortium that started up that is hoping to put a dent in some of the Ethernet challenges and re-architect some of that so that you can reliably use Ethernet, get those costs down and reduce the super specialized headcount that you might need to have to maintain that InfiniBand network as you can do it all with Ethernet safely with what uh, the UEC is coming up with. Um, so, the, yeah, the costs are coming down, Chris. Yeah, and it, it always just comes down to, you know, what's the acceptable performance for users? Like, like our internal code use case, our, our maximum inference response time is four seconds. And if I if I had a comment right in, in, into my IDE, and then within four seconds I get like I don't know twelve lines of code generated, I, I couldn't type twelve lines of code in four seconds. So that's acceptable performance, you know. So it's it really uh, it really depends on you know what the what the particular demand is. I mean, you know, obviously something in manufacturing or automotive or, you know, transportation where I have to have, you know, sub millisecond responses. It's a, it's a little different, but again, I'm not running racks and racks of servers inside a Tesla. I can still do some of these inferences with a, a relatively small hardware footprint. I got stuck on the 25 gig as a good start. <laughs> you know, you, you go back a little bit and you remember when getting one gig to the server was kind of a big deal. And then you were binding four one gig ports together. And now we're like, uh -huh. yeah, 25 gig. Good start. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, 25 gig cloud foundation from VMware, vSAN storage. That's going to give you a stack to let you run. And then we we layer some uh some open source on top of that. Or and we also have a bundle we're doing with NVIDIA. So there's a couple of different ways to get you there. Yeah, I'm actually I'm curious. So where does VMware help out in this hardware specking out and design process if I'm I'm pursuing a private AI implementation? There's two sides of this. I mean, if if you step back, I mean we we also probably need to answer the question. Why VMware in the first place? 
why would I use VMware for AI? That's the question I get. Can we start there first and then go into like how we help? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. So first people will say, well, can I do this in the cloud or on bare metal? And the answer is yes, of course. And you know, for some AI use cases, you're just going to use the cloud because the model size is massive or you're trying to just consume something as a service and, and things like that. Perfectly valid. Where we see ourselves adding value is the use cases I mentioned before, like private AI, where I'm trying to bring a model and compute to where, my, where I want to keep my data. That's where we shine, right? Because VMware is already everywhere. And then you can say, well, can I do that on bare metal? And sure, you can. But what we're finding from customers is in a lot of use cases, they don't want to. Uh, and th there's a couple of reasons for that. So one is when you go bare metal, you don't really have good control of your GPUs. If, if somebody is going and requesting like a, a retailer I, I've uh, been working with, one of their desires to use VMware is this. They have a uh, they have their data scientists and they go and just request X amount of GPU capacity for X amount of days. And there's no way to really check on do they actually need all that or not. So they just get what they ask for. And then when the core infrastructure runs out of capacity, then they're bursting to cloud and then they're paying for additional GPUs on demand. And they know that they're just wasting capacity with this approach, but they have no way to, to reclaim anything. So with VMware, I can virtualize my GPUs and I can, I can even slice up CPUs if I need to in terms of you know, allocating cores to different uh, use cases. So, so now you start to think, what if I have a resource pool that's all of my AI compute capacity, and now I can intelligently broker what a particular um, organization might need, uh, or a particular user application use case, whatever, right? So, and then I can start to reclaim capacity as well. So now I'm I'm getting I'm maximizing my spend on the capacity that I have with our software. That's that's huge. Another thing that we see is around central management. So I want to be able to have one set of tools and processes for my AI and non-AI workloads. So, so that matters to, to folks. And then there's just cool things we can do that nobody else can. Uh, for an example, we can stand up an entire AI cluster with the models preloaded into memory in under three seconds. It's, it's going to take you a minimum of 30 seconds typically in the public cloud. And what we've heard around bare metal is it's somewhere between five and seven minutes. We're doing it in three seconds. And you're like, well, how? Uh, there's technology uh, that we built primarily for VDI back in the day called Instant Clone. And if you go back to those days, right, especially thinking from a network perspective, everybody had the Monday morning bootstorms where everybody's trying to log onto a virtual desktop. And because of you had so much traffic, right, it would take sometimes minutes for your desktop to come up. So VMware reacted to that by building this instant clone technology that would let you take a base model and very quickly just snapshot it and bring up additional instances. What we found is we can apply that same use case to AI in terms of very quickly loading models, uh, not just onto the server or, onto, or having a VM set up and then also preloading the models into memory. So I can go from deployment to starting to run inference in a matter of seconds, which is which is pretty slick. So if I go back, you get with us, you're getting performance, you're getting the ability to virtualize some share capacity, which saves money, you're getting centralized management. And then I think probably most important is choice. So VMware is, our intent is to be a neutral party in this ecosystem. Uh, we're not picking favorites up the stack, we're, we're letting customers decide. And, and because AI is moving so fast, do you really want to buy like one AI platform, like hardware and software stack and say, this is our AI strategy? You know, to us, it's like invest in an AI infrastructure 
that lets you just drop in something new via software when it comes along. I don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. And that's the approach we're taking. And everything we're hearing so far is it really has resonated with customers. They've been pretty excited about it. And, and even the ISV ecosystem has been eager, eager to partner with us because we're not a direct competitor. If I am an ISV and AI and I run my stack on a hyperscaler, not only are they serving my customers, but they're also directly competing against me. That's a difficult place to be. And in VMware, we're not a direct competitor of theirs. We can let you run your software anywhere. We can get you access to customers and allow you to get your services stood up super quick, but do it in a way that's not going to also be a threat to your, your core business over time. But Chris, one follow-up question on, uh, you were talking about allocating GPU resources most efficiently. I don't think about sticking a hypervisor in the middle of things as adding efficiency. I think of that as adding some element of overhead. But in fact, what you're saying is if I do that, I can schedule the GPU usage so efficiently across different tenants, different, I'm not sure what the right word is to use here, that I wouldn't be able to do that on bare metal. I'd be maybe over allocating GPU to different folks and, and then wasting GPU. And I'm, and I'm not doing that if I'm using uh, VMware. That's, that, is that the point you're making? That, that is the point. And also from a performance perspective, we can perform up to 5% faster than bare metal. Which again, if you step back and you're like, wait a minute, so there's a there's an app or service, there's an OS, and now I'm going to put a hypervisor between that and bare metal. Yeah. How does that make sense? And the reason is, is a lot of your um, I.O. and scheduling functions get pushed down into the hypervisor from the operating system. And because for more than 20 years, VMware has been doing work to run you know, lots of different apps and services on the same hardware at the same time, we have the best scheduler in the industry hands down. Operating systems have not had to progress some of their scheduling algorithms as aggressively as VMware has because they didn't have that problem. And, you know, basically, you know, most of these workloads were running on a hypervisor anyway. So it's not like it was something that an OS vendor had to prioritize. So for for bare metal, we can run faster uh, than an OS just deployed to bare metal as well. So you're getting the benefits of, of virtualization and you're not compromising the performance. As you explain it that way, it makes sense. But this is not where I thought it was going to go. So that was very interesting, Chris. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, like a lot of AI workloads, that's it. It's like um, even in the public cloud, I'm getting an AMI instance. I'm, I'm still uh, a lot of the the way that AI has evolved right now from an orchestration perspective is I'm still I'm still connecting a service to a virtual machine instance, you know, by and large. It could be it could be containers too, but the container part of the stack is optional, really depending on the customer and the use case. Let's, let's talk about network connectivity for a minute here. Uh, I could have data that needs to be used to feed this model living in a lot of different places. Is the idea that I bring all that data to one place where my private AI stack is? Can my data live distributed across the multi-cloud and, and on-prem and wherever and then feed the model? How, how do I deal with this? To give you an example of a, another retailer I'm working with, they they have some really cool tech. And what they've figured out is a lot of times when retail and you're thinking about like computer vision use cases, it's all about how do I stop people from stealing from me? And, you know, there's there's some retailers that are they've looked at the investment and they're like, our theft isn't that bad. So it's actually not even worth it. And others, they they have it now at their self-checkout and, and places like that. But the use case that I found to be like the most interesting is what they're using AI for is to figure out if somebody is spending a long time in an aisle or at a particular shelf in an aisle. That usually means they need help. And if they can dispatch an associate to go over to the aisle and just check on the customer, what they found is they've actually seen a measurable uh, impact, positive impact in sales. 
so people are leaving the store with what they need uh, and they're they're being successful. And in their case, they're doing a lot of their model tuning based on a very small number of stores. And then they'll distribute that model to all of the other stores to, to run the inferencing locally. That's basically their architecture. And that's that's one approach. You, you see that in other locations as well. But you are going to get location bias with that. It's not going to be as perfect as if you did it another way. But there is technology we've been investing in for probably at least four years now uh, around distributed federated machine learning, which is, to your point, if I have data in all of these locations, uh, how can I just use a, use that data set in aggregate while preserving its privacy? Uh, and that's what these federated machine learning projects are about. FATE in the, in the Linux Foundation is a is one of them. OpenFL is another project that we're following. But but if I step back from like that level before folks are like, well, wait, do I need to go look at this today? If you're really that curious, go for it. But the analogy I use is like, if you go into a shop that's just like now they're getting comfortable with Kubernetes and you're like, hey, I'm going to talk to you now about service mesh. They're like, whoa, pump the brakes. Like, you know, I'm just getting my head around the Kubernetes thing. I am not ready for that. And it's the same thing with like federated learning. Like people are like, I just want to apply an AI use case to something I can gain business value from. Don't get me thinking about this next thing to, you know, for folks, they'll say that that's just more complex. But I, I, I guess the meta point is this, like federated learning is coming. It might be another, I don't know, two to four years out before folks are ready to really start to ingest uh, some of those technologies as well or to evolve some of their uh, their architecture approaches. And to your service mesh point, if I can draw out that analogy, not everybody needs a service mesh. You know, you can mm -hmm. function perfectly well in a Kubernetes environment. And we've done a few shows on this where you don't actually need a service mesh. You need something a little bit simpler to administrate the, the network in your cluster. And if you grow into it, you do. But for the time being, you might be perfectly happy with what you have. And I guess AI may take a similar path. And like you said, it's developing so quickly that some other technology might take off or, or some form of AI might take off that solves your need better than federated learning. Yeah, for sure. Great point, Ned. Definitely. All right. So uh, we, we were talking about data and its proximity. Is there like a particular format? my data needs to be in? Because I think you talked earlier about not wanting to put your data into the proprietary format that one of the big models demands. So is there a preferred format or, or can you kind of rock up with whatever your data is currently sitting in today, like a database or, or a file share? It really depends. I mean, yeah, it could be could be any of the above. Uh, it could be a relational database uh, with, uh, with a vector database attached to it. So like uh, we have customers using... Postgres uh, with our even our Greenplum uh, database with PG Vector. There's a whole bunch of other uh, databases that have like popped up from companies like Pinecone and Weaviet that are uh, interesting. But to your point, I can also apply language models across large unstructured data sets. So it could be uh, internal PDFs, it could be you know web pages, uh, Word documents, you know Confluence pages, uh, whatever it might be. So yeah, it really depends on on what the use case is and, and what you're uh, what you're looking to achieve. But yeah, it could be you know any of the above. Let's say I need to scale, Chris. I've gotten to the point where it started out that my needs weren't huge, and I was able to deal with one rack or maybe a couple of racks of hardware. Now I need to go bigger. How do I do that and maintain my existing investment? I guess there's a couple of ways. So so where where VMware is working is to offer these services through our cloud provider partners uh, over time. 
So that's going to give you the ability to also take advantage of capacity or need capacity on demand or where or maybe it's seasonal. So that's that's one way to scale is to you know just take advantage of external capacity. You know, the other other side of this is there's just uh, a lot of momentum right now too, just in terms of innovation for uh, AI in the semiconductor space. So NVIDIA is a huge partner of VMware, uh, but we work closely with Intel and AMD as well. So you know you're you're going to see more choices there as you start to look to to further scale uh, at least your infrastructure footprint. That there's going to be uh, more options for you uh, going forward. And you know every business I think is going to be slightly different here. But if you can if you can size your capacity well, uh, what we're seeing is if, if you if you want to continue to invest in on-prem, uh, you're gonna you're gonna have some pretty significant savings in compared to what the public cloud costs are today. And that's something we're we're working to publish some data on, uh, where we're, we're having a third party work with us to validate our own internal findings, make sure we're not missing anything. But we've seen a dramatically lower cost uh, running and scaling these models on premises uh, using open source uh, in comparison to what are some of the public offerings that would be external to us. Yeah, that's interesting. In that, if public cloud providers have an opportunity to drop prices, assuming that at the moment, because AI is all the rage, maybe they're being a little greedy in their pricing structures. So it would be interesting in a year from now to revisit this conversation and see how that goes. But you're saying dramatically different. I don't know if you have percentages, but it's it's an investment if I'm going to start standing up uh, racks in my own facilities again to uh, to do this kind of learning. I mean, if the savings are there, they're there. But I, I am wondering what the long-term play out is for that. Yeah, it's uh, you, you can serve tokens cheaper running your own stack than paying a fixed price in a, in a public cloud. And um, hmm. for for us, the cost benchmarks we've seen for like an internal chat service for uh, document search and, and code development is far less than half what it would cost us using GPT-4 in the public cloud. And the cynic in me went to the team and said, look, that sounds great, but can we actually really be half? And and the team calculated facilities costs, hardware costs, the software stack. They really looked at, at everything, but I still wasn't convinced. I said, let's bring in the third party. That would give us far more credibility than just something VMware is saying. That's what we're working on. And we've told them just like, you know, pick it apart, uh, make sure that we're not missing anything. Or if you have certain assumptions for you know certain locales that you see as more of an industry benchmark, then let's apply those. But even if we're, say we're off a little bit and we still come in at like 25% less, that's a big number. Uh, and that's still something that people are going to be like, okay, well, wait, maybe I should look in this direction, right? Rather than uh, just assume that I have to use native cloud services all the time. So should I be thinking about business resiliency? I mean, if I'm an operations person, that's what I think about. I think about what happens if this compute stack is not available because of a failure or something? Do I need to be building two of these stacks in geographically diverse locations if I'm building them and housing them in my own facilities that I'm running? Uh, you, you could, or you could look to, uh, again, like a VMware cloud provider partner as as another area where you can just turn on resiliency on demand, uh, you know, which, you know, we've seen like the DR use cases around our stack has been something that's been really, really popular with customers because then I don't have to like maintain a warm or cold standby site for, for the sake of resiliency. And that can you know, help to lower costs. You know, the other side of this too is with a more flexible virtualized infrastructure, 
I, I can power down like less uh, less important uh, or less business critical workloads right in time where I do have a hardware outage. So it doesn't have to be a an all or nothing. So if it's you know some of your lower tier applications, some of your dev test lab environments, if I need to if I need to pivot quickly, right, you have some options uh, to to do so. And this is where again, like if I go back, like the VMware approaches private AI infrastructure. So it's just a consistent infrastructure footprint that we can you know, create some uh, flexibility through virtualization. So it can be very easy to spin that up somewhere. And then if you're using models that you can run locally, whether that's open source or commercial from uh, an application ISV, once you have that, that consistency, it's easy. You know, the uh, something else I didn't mention that that helps in all of this is the we have integrations through NVIDIA AI Enterprise, uh, their Nemo software stack. If you're like a full NVIDIA shop, that's going to get you into the VMware environment really seamlessly. The other thing, the other areas that we've invested in is open source projects such as Ray. And and think about Ray is like a like an orchestrator for AI, and it's it's the most popular uh, open source project today. Um, OpenAI uses it just to give you an example. But what's what's great about Ray is is that it it provides a consistent way to broker AI services to the infrastructure they need. We've already done all the plumbing to integrate that into our our stack, and. There's dozens of AI software companies that use Ray. They already have native integrations with it. So I don't even have to, on the ISV side, I don't have to worry about maintaining integrations between them and like all of the VMware APIs. They just need to talk Ray and that's it. So even from a resiliency perspective, we have this really simple stack from the AI service to Ray to VMware infrastructure, and then, you know, off you go. So, uh, you know, the if it, I, I think with this approach and the ubiquity of VMware infrastructure, the resiliency, the, your options for resiliency are pretty broad. It just really is going to depend on what the what a particular business prefers. So let me flip this question on its head. Then, how do AI workloads affect business operations day to day? That is, let's say something that's mission critical, like like I don't know, you're a payment card provider, and if you can't process cards, then business isn't happening, and you're losing money, and all of that. Our AI workloads may be different where if there's a six-hour outage because of reasons, that's okay. And once the six hours has passed, we fix the thing and we can just go off and running and business wasn't really affected that much. Are these workloads that different um, because they're nice to have as opposed to need to have? Or are we getting to that? These are becoming business critical need to have workloads. It's it's going to depend on the on the use case, like the retailer one where I mentioned, where you know I'm I'm having AI help uh, be able to help customers right find things better right. That's uh, if if customers are getting a little bit less help from the associates or the associates aren't being prompted right to do these things, then the business is still going to run. You know, and if there's an outage and like a retailer is just like say failing over to like 5G for connectivity to continue to be able to process credit cards right there's there's ways around those issues. If it's safety or equipment monitoring in a manufacturing plant, that's a that's a different story, right? I, I, if I need to tell a robot arm where to stop, right, and uh, to stay within certain thresholds, right, you're starting to get into uh, people safety at that point. So it's it's definitely use case dependent in terms of you know what some of those different options might be. Right. It sounds largely it's the inferencing portion of it that could be business critical or at least time sensitive. The the training part, that's the sort of thing that, yeah, okay, if it's down for a few hours, that'll be all right. 
uh, we really want to focus on the inferencing and making sure that it meets whatever our SLAs are for the, the end user. Yeah, yeah. And you get the model tuned. You might go months, sometimes it can be over a year or more without even retraining the model. And I think that and it's a, it's a good point you raise because inferencing, that is your 24 by 7 workload. That's the most important workload as far as yeah. AI is concerned. That is what's running all the time and driving your capacity requirements where training is it's just cyclic when you need to adjust it. When you have a pretty well-tuned model, you're not going to worry about training it for, it could be a long time. And, and that's and that's also where you might say, you know what, I'm going to do some, I'm going to ship data and do some training periodically in a cloud where I have, I can get access to capacity on demand, but then I'm going to run inferencing, you know, on-premises or again, wherever the data is being created and I'm going to have access to it. Well, Chris, there's a lot going on here that is, it's emerging and new and all of a sudden it feels very real. It's like AI was like the running joke within IT operations for forever because everybody was talking about it, but nothing was really happening. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, it's here. It's here. It's happening. It's real. There's use cases. People are going to spend money on this. It's it's happening. So from a product availability standpoint with what VMware is offering in this space with private AI, is this something I can buy today? Is this coming soon? Yeah. So there's, there's two parts. So there's uh we announced the private AI foundation bundle with NVIDIA that will be coming soon. So that gives you just basically factory shipped AI appliance uh, from major OEMs such as Dell, HPE, and Lenovo. Uh, so that's uh, that's coming soon. Uh, however, uh, what we have available today is the reference architecture. We are using that to drive uh, POCs uh, with customers and, and just have some early validation as to what we're doing. You know, a lot of our sizing guidance has been based on our own internal use cases running the stack. And we know that we're going to learn more and get even better, be able to provide more prescriptive guidance doing these POCs. So from the corporate AI solutions page, there's a link to the reference architecture document uh, that also includes all the links to our code samples. And uh, customers have everything and partners have everything they need to, to go ahead and get going with us today. There's definitely no no reason to wait. And I think it's important to to go now because there's a lot of businesses that are they're already making some of their AI technology decisions. So we, we definitely want to be a part of that. We do have a team of folks in the field as well as uh, solution architects on the engineering side that are uh, that are there to provide the support and the technical guidance uh, around these different use cases. Chris, if I'm really interested in private AI and I want to learn more, does VMware have some resources for me so I can dig in? Yeah, fastest place to go would be via.vmw.com slash AI. That'll take you to our corporate AI landing page with links to all of the resources and all of the different things I've talked about here today. Excellent. And and Chris, are you a social person? If I wanted to reach out to you on LinkedIn or something, are you out there? Yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, yeah, all the. Well, can we say Twitter anymore? Or do we have to say X? I, I, I'm not sure, but yes. CS W O L F is my handle on both LinkedIn and t- Twitter or X. Well, Chris, thank you very much for spending time with us today on Day Two Cloud. And uh, if you're out there, virtual high fives to you for tuning in to the show on Private AI, sponsored by VMware, who we thank for sponsoring today's episode. And if you have suggestions for future shows, vendors you'd like us to reach out to, topics you want us to cover, we'd love to hear them. Fill out the request form on day2cloud.io. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, and I know you do, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and blogs are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. And it's all free, and it's all privacy-respected. There's no login required. There's no tracking cookies we use to follow you around the internet. We just want to share good information with you that makes you better at your job. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.